the first plot point in Infinity Gauntlet works, but the second plot point, it is a bizarre choice. What's up, Story Geeks? It's Jay on today's Story Geeks podcast. I'm breaking down Infinity Gauntlet. This is the first story breakdown I've ever done for our channel. What is a story breakdown? I'm going to examine the plot, pacing, characters, premise, all of the techniques a writer cares deeply about of a story. Today, that story is Infinity Gauntlet. Does Infinity Gauntlet work? Was it executed well? I will give you my take. I'll also compare and contrast Infinity Gauntlet with the MCU's Infinity War. Just a note, there are major, major spoilers going to go down on this podcast. So if you have not read Infinity Gauntlet and you want to read it, then do not listen to this podcast. But if you don't want to read it, this is the place to be because I'm going to be going really into detail on this. Be sure to check out my Infinity Gauntlet review on the Story Geeks Instagram account or in our Facebook group. That's free for everybody. I will be digging even deeper into Infinity Gauntlet here on the main podcast channel. This series goes really deep into some fascinating ideas. I hope you'll join me for that podcast as well. Both this show and that show will have associated aftercasts. Become a supporter on Patreon for $2 a month or more and gain access to those aftercasts. Be sure to check those out at thestorygeeks.com. Let's break down Infinity Gauntlet. In order to really examine Infinity Gauntlet, I'll be using a couple writing tools that I love. The first is Sid Field's Paradigm. The Paradigm was designed by Sid Field to ensure that the pace and plot of the story create an engaging audience experience. He studied a bunch of great stories to determine what they all had in common, and the Paradigm is what he came up with. It's primarily a screenwriting tool, but I use it for all of the stories I write, and I think its application can be used in a far broader context than just screenplays. Well, what is the paradigm? It is a visual outline that divides the story up into three acts. Act one takes up the first 25% of the story and sets up the story's central conflict. Act two picks up where act one leaves off and takes up about 50% of the story. It's double the size of act one. And act two is where the conflict plays itself out. Finally, act three resolves the conflict within the remaining 25% of the story. And obviously, those are all general guidelines, and we'll apply them however we can as it relates to this story. But those are the guidelines. Within this three-act structure, there are three critical inflection points. At the end of Act 1, we have plot point 1. In the middle of the story, literally dividing Act 2 in half, we have the midpoint. And then at the end of Act 2, we have plot point 2. I call them inflection points because each serves a different purpose, but they all serve to drive the story forward by altering the narrative in a meaningful and powerful way. So we'll be paying close attention to those things. I personally find the paradigm incredibly helpful in plotting and pacing my own stories, like Time Slingers and Death of a Bounty Hunter. It's certainly not the only way to tell a compelling story, but it is one of my personal favorites. If you want to know more about the paradigm, check out Sid Field's book, Screenplay. The second tool I use in my own storytelling that I'll use for this story breakdown and all story breakdowns that I do on this channel is Leos Agrees the Premise, which he covers in detail in his book, The Art of Dramatic Writing, which I highly recommend. The premise defines the point the story is attempting to make. The premise serves as the key concept that connects the story to the human experience. It's a fantastic tool as well, and it speaks to why we care about stories we love in the first place. A large portion of this podcast will be dealing with the paradigm, but we'll get into the premise near the end as well, which is a really cool thing. If you haven't listened to my review of 
Infinity Gauntlet. You can check that out on the Story Geeks Instagram account or in our Facebook group. But the quick synopsis is Thanos already has the Infinity Gauntlet, which holds the Infinity Gems. With that gauntlet, Thanos is the most powerful being in the universe. And to impress Death, a female character Thanos wants to desire him, Thanos wipes out half the population of the universe. And of course, this action drives all the remaining heroes in the universe to rise up against Thanos. It's a six-part comic book series that came out in 1991. And if you listen to my review, it is not my favorite Marvel story, but it is very compelling. And obviously, some of the components that are found in that story are driving what we're currently seeing in the MCU, which I'll get into as we get into this story breakdown. Let's start with Act 1, the setup. The comic begins with Thanos already in possession of the Infinity Gauntlet, like I just said, and he's essentially the most powerful being in the universe. He's even bold enough to call himself God. Knowing that Thanos has the Infinity Gauntlet and possesses unheard of levels of power, the Silver Surfer travels to Earth to visit Doctor Strange and warn him about the Mad Titan, which, by the way, is Thanos' nickname. You can already see some of the differences between Infinity Gauntlet, the series, and the MCU's Infinity War here in the setup. In the film, Thanos is hunting down Infinity Stones, whereas in the comic, Thanos already has all the gems he needs. In fact, you can read a little bit more about that in the Thanos Quest, which is another series, just a two-part series, and actually is far superior to the Infinity Gauntlet, in my opinion. The Infinity Gauntlet that Thanos has is already complete. He's already built it. The Silver Surfer does not appear in the movie at all. Instead, it's Bruce Banner who warns Doctor Strange about Thanos. And then by far the biggest difference between the comic and the movie is Thanos' motivation. In the movie, he wants to alleviate the population's depletion of natural resources. In the comic, he literally wants to impress death because he wants her to desire him. As I mentioned in my review, if you listen to that, Thanos in the comics is super immature compared to this movie alter ego. Let's get back to the comic. We learn that Adam Warlock is working with the Silver Surfer and that they were both trapped inside the Soul Gem for a time, but managed to escape. That's intriguing because many are theorizing that the people Thanos turned to dust in the film might be inside the Soul Stone, just like Adam Warlock and the Silver Surfer were in this comic. So, Act 1... Brief recap, it's the basic setup. Thanos wants death to desire him. I say it that way because I don't think he's actually interested in her love at all. He just wants her to want him, and he's really obsessive about it. Now, they explore this concept in some of the other comics a little bit more in depth, but in this comic specifically, it seems like infatuation, not love. I'll get into that some more in my Dig Deeper podcast, but just want you to know that as the setup starts here. Adam Warlock and the Silver Surfer, realizing that Thanos has all this power, go off into the universe to warn everybody else about it. They're basically trying to raise an army to go fight Thanos. And now as a writer, I'm looking for plot point one to occur either at the end of issue number one or at some point within issue number two. It's a six-part series, so it's a little bit um, awkward. If it was an eight-part series, it'd be a little bit easier to break this down by the paradigm. But we're going to use this six-part series and see, what we, see where we get. 
Uh, plot point one is going to be an inflection point of some kind, something that drives the action forward, an event that forces the characters in the story to take action. And so what do we have so far? We have the setup. Thanos is super godlike in his ability. He's immature. He's trying to impress death so that she will desire him. And then we have the heroes showing up to kind of warn one another that this, that Thanos has this power. So that's the setup. Throughout issue number one, uh, as Thanos is attempting to prove to death that he's worthy of her desire, he's doing things that cause harm to others and showcase his immense power. So, for example, we see Nebula, his granddaughter in the comic. Obviously, in the MCU, it's his daughter. We see Nebula being tortured. Thanos is doing that in part to impress death. He's holding Nebula somewhere between life and death and in immense pain. It's an important story point, but it's not plot point one. That just takes place in the setup. So it's kind of showcasing what Thanos is willing to do and kind of the the dirt bag that he is. In fact, he says he's a, he's a nihilist, which we get into really in depth in my Dig Deeper show. But in this show, as it relates to Thanos, he says he's a nihilist. He doesn't care about anything. And he's literally torturing Nebula um, to impress death. I bring it up because it's going to be incredibly important later and I also wanted to say it because we see Thanos torture Nebula in some similar ways in Infinity War. The design is a little bit different. The actual torture is a little bit different, but the intention is kind of is kind of similar here. Plot point one, at least in my opinion, appears at the end of issue number one when Thanos decides that the best way to impress death is to kill half the people in the universe. And like at the end of Infinity War, he just snaps his fingers. Human sacrifice on a universal scale, all to impress death. After Thanos snaps his fingers, which is plot point one, like I said, the next few scenes showcase the rest of the universe reacting to the fallout from Thanos' actions. Thanos' snap, plot point one, is an inflection point that drives all the other characters into action, and it literally changes the entire universe. So it's a, it's really a fantastic inflection point. At this point, I would say that the story is being constructed very well. I don't love the character of Thanos because I think he his infatuation and his immaturity is uh, a little weird, so I don't love that part of it, but the setup is strong. The setup is strong because we have a villain who is desperate, desperately trying to impress death, there is an inflection point. What is that inflection point? He wipes out half the population of the universe, and that is driving the action forward. How in the world are we going to solve this central conflict? Namely, that Thanos is all-powerful and can do whatever he wants. Really, really strong plot point one. Now, before we get into act two, I mentioned that there are some strange subplots that don't really go anywhere. Um, one that's totally unresolved and not even referenced again in the story, it's just completely dropped altogether, is that the Scrolls and the Kree blame each other for half their populations disappearing and subsequently declare war on each other. But it doesn't go anywhere at all. Maybe it shows up in another comic series. I have no idea. But it's very odd. It's totally unresolved. It's never brought up again in this in this series, at least. So... My question is, do you guys think that this subplot, the Scrolls versus the Kree, because of Thanos' actions, them going to war, do you think that this subplot will be explored at all in MCU's Captain Marvel movie this year? Let me know what you think. I'd like to, I'd like to know what you think. Leave me a comment and let me know. So that's it for issue number one. It sets up our central conflict, Thanos versus the rest of the universe. 
and it unveils plot point one, like we talked about, Thanos snapping his fingers and wiping out half the population of the universe. So far, so good. Issue number one uh, is my favorite issue in the series, maybe besides issue number six. Issue number one and issue number six are both pretty decent. Um, but like I said, this comic never gets over a six out of 10, seven out of 10 for me at the highest. So we're not talking about an excellent comic, but we're, we're saying this is pretty good. This is a pretty good, compelling setup for our story. Now let's get into act two, which is where all the conflict starts to unravel. And issue number two brings more characters into this conflict. Um, really all the characters who've survived Thanos' snap. Because we've been comparing Infinity Gauntlet to Infinity War, Here's a list of the characters who survived Thanos' snap in the comics, but actually died in the movie. Spidey, Cap, Nick Fury, Doctor Strange, the Scarlet Witch, and Drax. Those characters all died in the movie, but are very much alive in this comic. Now, some characters who didn't survive Thanos' snap in the comic, who are actually alive in the movie, are, it's a very short list, Hawkeye, because we know this from the Endgame trailer. They don't really talk about Hawkeye much in Infinity War. And Wong. And that's really it. It's a very short list. Daredevil, who was not in the movie, obviously, was also killed by Thanos here in the comic. And I found that really interesting. Obviously, it's not really a comparison of Infinity Gauntlet to Infinity War, because it has to do with the greater MCU, if you want to call it that, from the TV show, which I found kind of fascinating. Now, if you've read the comic and have seen the movie, double-check all of those. I'm wondering if I missed any of them or misstated any of them. Now, some of the more important characters who show up in issue number two of Infinity Gauntlet are Eros, Thanos' brother, the Avengers who are still alive, and Doctor Doom. Now, there are a ton of other characters who show up, not just the ones I mentioned. Um, Epoch shows up, Quasar shows up. I mean, the list is just crazy long, like... If I were to read all of the characters that appear in Infinity Gauntlet, that would be like its own podcast. Thanos continues to torture Nebula. He also summons his brother Eros and then tortures him as well, all with the purpose of impressing death. The only reason I bring it up is that some of his methods of torture actually show up in the movie, or at least like variations of them do. He separates their molecular structure. He drives things through their bodies. It's all very strange, um, and it's not quite the same as it's done in the movie. It's a little bit, the aesthetic is a little bit different, but the basic premise is, is still there. And it should be noted that he's torturing family members here and has zero emotion about it. We'll talk about that in the Dig Deeper podcast. This guy's basically a sociopath. One other big difference between the movie and the comic here in Act 2 is that Thanos doesn't have four henchmen, hench people, that he sends out. In the movie, he sends out four apocalyptic cronies to find Infinity Stones. But he doesn't do that in the comic. Really, his only ally is Mephisto, who feels very similar to Ebony Maw in the film, but it's not the same character, and Mephisto doesn't ever leave Thanos' side. As I mentioned earlier, he doesn't need to because Thanos already has all of the Infinity Gems in this comic. So he doesn't send out anybody out. He stays in one place, and everybody else basically comes to him until the very end of the end of the book. Issue number two deals a lot with side conflicts as opposed to addressing the main conflict. Thanos has these childlike outbursts when death doesn't respond to him. He basically has a he has an outburst, and those outbursts cause massive damage to entire planets, including Earth. 
And I don't know about you, but it seems to me like that's just an excuse for the Avengers to do something interesting while coming to grips with Thanos' newfound power. It doesn't really feel like it's all that interesting to the main story or the central conflict. Now, before we get to the midpoint, because we're almost midway through Act 2, so we're going to be looking for the midpoint, some sort of inflection point that, that drives us towards the third act, the end of the second act into the third act. So before we get to the midpoint, I do want to mention that issue number three does bring in more characters, and I have to mention them because they bring in the astral deities. And those are the beings that are like major philosophical concepts embodied as actual characters. We see the embodiment of chaos and order, eternity, love and hate, Galactus, Kronos, etc. These astral deities all decide that Thanos is too big a threat even to them, and they plan to step in to face him. So the beginning of Act 2 is really uh, bringing more and more and more people into the conflict. We're watching Thanos have outbursts. We're watching him torture people. But Death isn't really responding, and he's growing increasingly frustrated. That really brings us to the midpoint. And this is another inflection point. It's not quite as big of an inflection po- point. It's not as profound as what we see with plot point one or plot point two. It's usually often a revelation of something that we didn't know that will impact the characters and the central conflict in a significant way. So, for example, like the revelation of a twist might be something we might see for a midpoint. And the primary importance of the midpoint is that Act 2 is very long. It's often as long as Act 1 and Act 3 combined. So if the writer doesn't break up Act 2 in some meaningful way, the story can really start to stall right in the middle, right in the middle of the central conflict. So I think there are two possibilities for the midpoint here. One is plot-related, and the other is character-related. And this can happen in a story where the character's journey needs to be an emotional midpoint, while the plot also needs uh, a narrative midpoint. Ideally, they're the same plot point, or midpoint, if you will. They're the same thing. The plot is driven forward and the character is driven forward, but it doesn't always work out that smoothly. And sometimes writers have to break it up into, you know, the character journey has its own midpoint while the plot actually has a separate midpoint. The emotional midpoint, the one that's focused on the character journey, occurs, I believe, when Thanos creates Taraxia. So Thanos just decides to create a female character who desires him unconditionally. He creates her to make death jealous. It's something that basically showcases where Thanos is at in his character journey right smack dab in the middle of this story. But in my opinion, the bigger plot-driven midpoint is the coalescing of all the different heroes that rise up to fight Thanos. So up, up until this point, they've all been trying to mitigate the damage done to their respective areas of the universe, or they've been assembling and discussing potential tactics or strategies in how to defeat Thanos. But this is where they really go to war with Thanos, and it's a big inflection point, because like I said, they have not been doing anything to Thanos, and they all get together and say, we have to go to war with Thanos. And that, to me, is the midpoint of this story, where it's an inflection point, whereas they're reacting to the conflict, and now they're going to drive some of the conflict by facing Thanos directly. 
As we get into this battle in the second half of part two, one important thing to note is that Mephisto convinces Thanos to cut himself off from the omnipresence that the Infinity Gauntlet provides him. He uh, Basically, Thanos has the ability to know where everyone is and what everyone is going to do. But in order to impress death, he cuts himself off from that power and sets aside his omnipresence. Now, when I dig deeper into the story, we're going to talk about omnipresence, omniscience, uh, omnipotence, like or om- omnipotence. We're going to talk about all that stuff in the dig deeper portion of the show. But just so you know, Thanos is basically as godlike as you can be. He has all of these abilities. Mephisto convinces Thanos to cut off his omnipresence. Um, and some of his omniscience as well, if you're asking me. I'll define that better in the Dig Deeper podcast. But uh, just so that he can impress death. Mephisto's basic idea here is that it will show that Thanos is courageous if he isn't truly, totally godlike. If he sacrifices some of his own power while fighting all of these other entities, then maybe death would respect him for that. And so Thanos does that. And as you might have guessed... The battle does not go well for the Avengers. Thanos gives them a solid ass whooping. And by the way, the battle does not take place on Earth like it does in Infinity War. That's another big difference here. It takes place on Thanos' lack of a better term, Fortress of Solitude. He builds this fortress floating in space. Uh, It could be Death's Fortress, actually. We're not really given those terms. I, I got the impression that Thanos built it, but it could very well be just Death's Fortress. Anyways, so Thanos, until the very end of the story, Thanos is on this space fortress. So everyone is coming to him. So I just want to make that clear is that people are leaving Earth. The Avengers, for example, are all leaving Earth, and they're coming to this fortress, this space fortress. And while he while Thanos possesses the Infinity Gauntlet, he does not leave this space fortress. He stays right there. Um And so the Avengers are the first ones to show up. The Avengers are the first ones to face off against him. Now, I should note that Adam Warlock and the Silver Surfer, who helped plan this battle and plan this attack, they're actually just watching the battle unfold from a remote area of space. Adam Warlock has a plan for how the battle needs to play itself out in order for Thanos to be destroyed, but he's not revealing that plan to anyone. It's kind of like in Infinity War, the movie, where Doctor Strange knows the millions of ways the Avengers could lose and the one way they could win, but he doesn't tell them that one way. He doesn't tell them what that one way is. It's kind of like that. Adam Warlock... Now, we it's a different intention. The different intention is Adam Warlock feels like he knows how to win, and he's sort of like using people, whereas Doctor Strange knows that if they know, they might mess it up, so he doesn't tell them. So it's a little bit different, but it's kind of a similar uh, device that they're using there. It should also be noted that this battle with Thanos, oh my gosh, this is an extended battle. It is crazy long. But like I said, Thanos does win. He beats the Avengers and then realizes that giving up his omnipresence was foolish. So he brings that back. He takes that power back. He, he no longer cuts himself off from that. And that actually brings us all the way up to issue number five. So we've gone through issue number one, where we saw plot point number one, namely that Thanos killed half the people in the universe. We went through uh, most of most of Act Two. We've made it through most of Act Two. We saw the midpoint, um, both the Thanos's emotional midpoint in creating Taraxia, and then and by the way, Taraxia doesn't do much in this whole story. So that's literally something to showcase where Thanos is emotionally. And then also we saw the 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 plot midpoint being that now the the battle begins essentially 
between them going to Thanos to fight Thanos. So that brings us all the way to issue number five. This is going to be the very end of act two, issue number five. And in issue number five, that's where the astral deities rise up against Thanos. So the Avengers have been defeated. Some of the other characters who are not uh, astral deities have also been defeated by Thanos already. Like I mentioned earlier, Quasar is defeated. Epoch is defeated. Well, the astral deities being, you know, Eternity, Kronos, Love and Hate, Galactus, all the others, all of those concepts that are embodied as characters here, they fight Thanos. They go to battle. They go to war with Thanos. And most of the time, we get the impression that these characters don't go into battle at all. There's no reason for them to fight. And they don't really care about what's happening in the universe for the most part. It doesn't seem like it. That's kind of the intention here. We're going to talk about that a little bit more on the Dig Deeper podcast. But they care because Thanos himself is so powerful and he can basically take over all of their roles if he wants to. So this battle is a giant battle and this battle almost tears the universe itself to pieces. Um, It's also another super extended battle. It's very long and it's sort of an acid trip. It's very cosmic. Uh, It's a little hard to tell what the hell is going on, but in the end, Thanos beats the astral deities as well. Massive battle, almost destroys the universe, but Thanos beats the astral deities. And Thanos is just by himself. So this is we're talking about Thanos having massive amounts of power. Now, I will bring this up. There is a moment in that battle where Mephisto attempts to take the Infinity Gauntlet from Thanos, basically betraying him. And he's been kind of the only person who's on Thanos' side because death has been ignoring Thanos this entire time. But Thanos easily beats him back. He easily takes care of Mephisto. So it's fairly inconsequential. But I just mentioned it because, like I said, Mephisto is Thanos' only ally, so it's kind of interesting. Thanos is is becoming more and more alone um, as he becomes more and more godlike. As soon as Thanos wins the battle against the astral deities, he renounces his flesh and essentially becomes all of the astral deities combined. And this part of the story really begins to feel a little bit like Dr. Manhattan's character from Watchmen. Thanos is finally starting to realize how extensive the power he possesses is after he destroys the astral deities. In fact, beating Eternity in particular makes him realize what he can truly become with the Infinity Gauntlet, and he sort of starts to remove himself from his physical being and starts to take on this ethereal kind of nature. And that brings us to another giant inflection point, which is plot point two. Thanos becomes eternal, leaves his body, his actual flesh. He leaves all that behind at the Space Fortress. And with his attention focused on his eternal godhood, he's distracted. And that gives Nebula the chance to take the Infinity Gauntlet off his hand. Because his body, he's not paying attention to it. He's become ethereal. He's kind of just you know, thinking about the universe, I guess. And she just goes up to his, his, his body there and takes the infinity gauntlet. And her immediate first action is to banish Thanos to the far reaches of the universe. Nebula taking the infinity gauntlet for herself is plot point two. It is a significant inflection point. How Thanos didn't know she was going to take it, by the way, is not explained. Uh, I don't understand how he has omniscience an omnipresence, and doesn't realize what Nebula is going to do before she does it. It doesn't make any sense that he would be distracted because if you have omniscience or um, if you have omnipresence, you literally know everything that's going on. You're not really, it doesn't make sense 
to be distracted, in my opinion. So I would call that a plot hole, honestly. I would call plot point two a plot hole, but a lot is writing on plot point two. So we just go ahead and go along with it and we continue to move on. Now, to defend the comic, I believe the intention here is to show that Thanos is so enthralled with his godhood that he's not paying attention to the other inferior sentient beings. Again, kind of like Dr. Manhattan from Watchmen. I think this is an interesting plot point. It fits with Thanos's character journey, but it also seems to subvert the central conflict. So not only is it sort of a plot hole, but it also subverts the central conflict because it's no longer Thanos versus the universe. So Nebula has the Infinity Gauntlet. Nebula is now the one that everyone's worried about, not Thanos. Thanos is banished to some unknown part of the universe. In my opinion, it hurts the plot. It does serve Thanos' character arc and the overall premise of the conflict, which we'll get into in a little bit, but it does, in my opinion, it kind of hurts the plot here. So that sends us into Act 3, which is all about the resolution of the conflict, resolution of the story. In Act 3, Doctor Strange and Adam Warlock call Thanos back from space, and he joins them in facing off against Nebula. And the thought process is that Nebula doesn't have the experience with immense power that Thanos does, so she seems far more beatable than he ever would have been. Now, this is really important. One of the first things that Nebula does after she banishes Thanos, and she does this to spite Thanos, is that she turns the clock back 24 hours. She reverses Thanos' devastating snap, restoring all the people who died back to life. That means... Even the astral deities and those Thanos killed in battle, they all come back to life. If we're looking at what the MCU's Avengers Endgame might have in store, something like this is totally possible. Nebula, or some other character, could take the Infinity Gauntlet from Thanos and use it to reverse time. I think most of us expect something like that to happen, but who knows? I guess we'll have to wait and see. In the comic, Thanos, Doctor Strange... The Silver Surfer, Adam Warlock, along with some of the other resurrected characters, face off against Nebula. But she manages to beat them. So despite her inexperience with this massive amount of power, uh, she still manages to beat back basically the Avengers plus Doctor Strange, Silver Surfer, Adam Warlock. She manages to beat all of them back. Which means that it's the astral deity's turn to face her. Just like they faced Thanos, they're back now to face her because obviously she's turned the clock back 24 hours. They're now alive. And at first it looks like they might win, but Nebula turns the tables and starts to beat them back. So basically it turns out that Nebula isn't as weak as everyone thought she might be, which is kind of a cool thing. And at this point, the comic jumps into the world of the soul gem. I should note that I don't think I've mentioned this yet. In the comic, they're called gems. In the movies, they're called stones. So this is the, the soul gem, not the soul stone. It's the same thing, but they call it the gem in the comic. So we jump into the soul gem, and this is where the recently deceased Adam Warlock and the Silver Surfer were sent when they were defeated by Nebula. Inside the soul gem, Adam Warlock's power is stronger. I think it's because he spent so much time in the Soul Gem before, but they don't, I don't think they really explain that in the comic too much. And I'm not exactly sure how this worked. I could not tell exactly how this worked in the comic. But essentially, Adam Warlock reaches out into all the other gems from inside the, the Soul Gem. He reaches out into all the other gems in the Infinity Gauntlet 
and somehow manages to rip them apart or cut them off from one another. At least that's how I read it in the comics. It's a little confusing to me personally, but he basically separates the interwoven powers of the gems and that removes the Infinity Gauntlet from Nebula's hand. So he doesn't destroy the gauntlet itself. He doesn't destroy any of the gems. He just temporarily disrupts its power. And as he disrupts its power, it falls off Nebula's hand. This is another potential direction that Avengers Endgame could take. If there are characters in the Soul Gem whose powers can be utilized, so they're already in the Soul Gem, but their powers can still be utilized in some way, like Adam Warlock is using his powers while he's in the Soul Gem, they might be able to do what Adam Warlock does here, separating the interwoven powers of the Infinity Stones and causing Thanos to lose his godlike powers temporarily. It's certainly a possibility. Back to the comic, Nebula losing the Infinity Gauntlet creates another battle. This is, there's a lot of battles in this, in this series. A lot of battles. And this time, it's for possession of the Infinity Gauntlet itself. And this is sort of everybody versus Thanos again, but this time he doesn't have godlike powers. So it's just him and his normal powers versus all of them as they fight over the Infinity Gauntlet. After this battle ends, Adam Warlock comes away with the Infinity Gauntlet. He claims it. And then he claims that he will be a god who can be fully trusted. Now, we're definitely going to dig into this part. We're going to dig deeper into this part um, in the podcast about the Infinity Gauntlet where we dig deeper. That's coming up this later this week. But needless to say, that is a fascinating concept. So nobody is totally content with Adam Warlock having the kind of power that the Infinity Gauntlet allows, but they also can't really prevent him from taking it. So rather than setting off another battle... Everyone just allows Adam Warlock to take the Infinity Gauntlet, which then leads to our conclusion. In the final pages of Infinity Gauntlet, Adam Warlock visits a planet where Thanos lives a simple, peaceful life. He's like basically almost like a farmer. Like he has a whole plot of land and a house and everything. His, his armor is uh, kind of almost sitting like a scarecrow <laughs> is really what it's doing. Um, but Adam Warlock is really burdened with the weight of this this new role. So Thanos is living this simple, peaceful life, but Adam is burdened with the weight of this new role. And he goes to ask Thanos for advice. And, and actually it seems like this is a loop that he, this keeps happening. He take Adam Warlock takes the infinity gauntlet and about 30, 60 days later, he's going through a loop where he needs to go visit Thanos again and visit Thanos and ask him for his advice. This Thanos, which is far different from the Thanos we saw at the beginning of the story, this Thanos is actually far more mature. The one in the beginning of the story is immature. This Thanos seems really mature. And so when Adam Warlock asks him what he should do, Thanos basically just tells him, endure or surrender the power. And Adam, lost in the weight of that responsibility, leaves. Though as he leaves, he still seems extremely troubled by the power that he possesses with the Infinity Gauntlet. He, this power is not sitting easily with him. He's really having a hard time with it. And guess what? That is where the comic ends. The comic ends with Thanos reflecting on how his quest for power was a foolish one and how he's more content now not having any power at all, or at least his limited powers. Um, and thus the two competitors have sort of reversed places. Adam Warlock, who always fought to keep Thanos' power at bay, is now troubled and disconnected because he has the Infinity Gauntlet. And Thanos, who always sought more power, is very content without it. He's, I would say he's even happy. He looks pretty happy to me. 
Thanos really does have a sweeping character arc, going from being a very immature character who seeks this the desire and infatuation he has with with death and seeks for her to desire him then turns into a pretty mature character who's all alone there's no indication that he's with death at the end of this comic so he didn't he did not achieve any of his desired results he didn't achieve power nor did he achieve her uh desiring him but i will say this it's a sweeping character arc thanos does change but i'll say this his infatuation with death is never truly resolved. We sort of see where he ends up. We see that the, he has a change in him, but this change kind of comes out of left field. We don't. There's nothing leading up to this change that would make us realize or recognize what he, why he changed the way he did. He sort of just all of a sudden has this realization. We see him. Something happened to him. Maybe he had a realization at some other point in time, but we don't know what that is. All right, let's go back through this really quick and just touch on some of the major points so that we can look at this from a bigger perspective, 30,000 feet, looking down at the paradigm, seeing how this story from a plot standpoint all uh, was broken down. The setup is that Thanos is now a god and wants death to desire him. One of the things he does to prove that she should desire him is that he wipes out half the universe. When he does that, it sets up the central conflict, the entire universe versus godlike Thanos. Plot point number one is that snap, and that snap completes a pretty compelling setup. How in the world will the superheroes of the universe overcome Thanos and his godlike power? I dig it. That's intriguing. I like that. That brings us into Act 2, which is all about conflict. For me, Act 2 falters quite a bit, though. We're still introducing characters. The conflict is all reactionary. Our heroes reacting to whatever Thanos is doing. To me, it's fairly boring. It's a lot to get through. It's very slow. The midpoint works because we all want these heroes to finally confront Thanos, and they do. So it is satisfying to see that occur. But the second half of Act 2 is just one giant god battle after another that goes from crazy to utterly insane. And when that happens, I was taken out of the urgency of the whole thing and left with characters I could not relate to. So that didn't really work for me as well. Plot point 2, Nebula taking the Infinity Gauntlet from Thanos works as it relates to Thanos's character journey because he has to learn these lessons. But as a plot device, I think it's kind of weak because it's, again, subverting the central conflict, the universe versus Thanos. When all of a sudden it becomes the universe versus Nebula, that's not really what we signed up for. That's not really what we were told the story was going to be. Now, the resolution with Thanos giving Adam Warlock advice works. I'm not sure it should work because I'm not sure there's any evidence that Thanos could have made this monumental shift in maturity, but I like it. I like the way the comic ends. Adam Warlock struggles with power while Thanos lives in peace and harmony. It's kind of cool. I kind of dig that. Okay, so now that we've extensively broken down the plot and you guys have a pretty good feel for what happens in this story, or if you already knew what happened in this story, you kind of know what the writers were thinking about as they were trying to let this story unfold and what kind of big inflection points they needed to add. Now that we've done that, let's spend a little bit of time on the premise. What is this story proposing about the human experience that we should be paying attention to? How should we respond to this story? I would label the premise of Infinity Gauntlet as the pursuit of and responsibility that comes with power leads to distress. Now, granted, I understand that's not a very succinct way of stating it. It's almost like stating two separate premises in one premise. 
um, and you might have a better way of stating it. But the resolution shows that Thanos has found peace and harmony, not in the possession of power or being desired by death. He didn't achieve either of those goals. Instead, Thanos has found peace and harmony in simplicity. The pursuit of power and respect distressed him. Adam Warlock, on the other hand, now has that power, but he's also distressed. The weight of that responsibility is too heavy for him, which begs the question, should we pursue power and respect? And what should we do with it once we have it? I like that premise a lot. I definitely find it intriguing and worthy of exploration. And guess what? We are going to explore the hell out of that premise in the Dig Deeper podcast. Tune in for that for sure, because we get into some really weighty philosophical and theological topics. Okay, we broke down the plot of Infinity Gauntlet using Sid Field's paradigm, and now we've also covered the premise. Obviously, these are my interpretations of those things. I'd love to hear what you think, though. I'd love to hear your thoughts about Infinity Gauntlet and about the plot points and about the inflection points and whether or not you like them. So shoot me an email or leave me a comment at thestorygeeks.com. And stay tuned. Later this week, we'll be releasing our Dig Deeper episode on Infinity Gauntlet. You'll get to hear my thoughts about that and what I think the writers were suggesting as they got into some pretty deep philosophical, theological, scientific musings. And I find it fascinating. By the way, when you head over to thestorygeeks.com, consider becoming a supporter at the $2 a month tier. If you do, you'll unlock premium content like our Aftercast. On today's Aftercast, I'll be recommending some changes I would make to Infinity Gauntlet to make it a better story. That should be good times. I hope you'll become a supporter and check that out. I hope you enjoyed this story breakdown. Let me know what story you want to break down next. Do you want me to break down Infinity War? Since we've talked so much about Infinity Gauntlet, should I break down Infinity War as well and take a look at that? I can run it through the paradigm, talk about the premise of the movie. That'd be really fun. If you want me to do that, let me know. And remember, question everything in your favorite geek stories and always seek the truth. <laughs>